Um, today I'm going to talk about uh, my life with pain and Zen. There was a time when I used to say, that man's a Turk or a Bulgar or a Greek. I've done things for my country that would make your hair stand on end, boss. I've cut people's throats, I burned villages, robbed and raped women, wiped out entire families. Why? Because they were Bulgars or Turks. Bah, to hell with you, you swine, I say to myself sometimes. To hell with you right away, you ass. Nowadays, I say, this man is a good fellow. That one's a bastard. They can be Greeks or Bulgars or Turks. It doesn't matter. Is he good or is he bad? That's the only thing I ask nowadays. And as I grow older, I'd swear this on the last crust I eat. I feel I shan't even go on asking that. Whether a man's good or bad, I'm sorry for him, for all of them. The sight of a man just rends my insides, even if I act as though I don't care a damn. There he is, poor devil, I think. He also eats and drinks and makes love and is frightened. Whoever he is, he has his God and his devil just the same. And he'll peg out and lie as stiff as a board beneath the ground and be food for worms, just the same. Poor devil. We are all brothers, all worm meat. From Zorba the Greek, from Nikos Kazantzakis. Please sit comfortably. Please sit comfortably. <laughs> if you haven't read the book, I recommend it. Um, if you already have, probably you know already that Buddha is referred to throughout the whole book. I only read the book in high school because it was a compulsory. And all I remembered was these few words that I just read to you, but I cannot recall mention of Buddha at all. How did I miss that? I'm sure it was because my mind was occupied with other problems, big problems. Whether I was liked by the cute boy I saw the night before, what were those boys whispering about today at school while looking at me, were they saying that I was too skinny and not beautiful enough to ask me out? Or were they saying that I had a big nose? Or was any one of them thinking about asking me out? They never did, by the way. <laughs> was I good enough for anyone? Will I ever find love? Was I smart enough for anyone? I must go to university and study, finish a degree so then people don't think I'm stupid. That dress I wore today didn't look very good on me. What should I wear tonight? One thing used to worry me a lot was, would anyone love me like this, frequently getting sick, most of the time in pain and no energy? And pain was and still is a huge part of my life. In fact, I cannot remember a time when I was completely free of it. Officially, I started coming to the Zen group around 2002 and this is how the story goes. I was getting at a breaking point with my obsessions, they were so bad that I could not cope on a daily basis and I had to find a solution. 
so I was looking for some literature on obsessions without any success and almost gave up when I came across a book about Buddhism. I can't remember the name of the book. Um, all I know it was about Buddhism. To my surprise, after just a few lines, I thought, ah, this makes sense. It was filling a hole in my lonely world of nobody understanding me. But as I was reading the book at home, I didn't expect to come across a line that I will remember for the rest of my life. It said, meditation is an antidote to obsessions. Wow, <laughs> I found the cure for my sick mind. <laughs> the very next day when I was picking up my children from school, one of the mothers mentioned that Mr. Steen, who was my daughter's teacher at the time, was a Buddhist. I ran into his classroom and I said, Hi, I'm Barbara's mom and I just heard that you're a Buddhist and I want to learn meditation. So he gave me a CD to listen to and I found the only type of meditation I could do is to observe my thoughts. It also was making sense to me since it was my thinking that I wanted to fix. For two years I was observing my thoughts, day and night. My whole world started crumbling concepts and beliefs dropping, friendships ending, new ones forming, excitements, disappointments, etc. I had millions of questions and Paul Steen, with his priceless support, introduced me also to Djokovic's book Nothing Special Living Zen, which was answering all my questions. I read then for the first time about retreats and strange people sitting on cushions for hours with aching knees, practicing Zen, and I thought, these people are masochists. They enjoy pain, and I will never do it. But after two years of all this, I woke up one day and realized I needed more. So there I was, together with Paul Steen, signing up for a two-day session in Rottnest. This is when I officially started, started practicing Zen. But when I think about it, I started practicing Zen long before I got to know Zen and the Zen group of WA. As I mentioned before, pain was a huge part of my life. My legs were hurting since I've known of myself. My mother said that the moment I started walking, I started complaining about sore legs. And I'm speaking here about physical pain. So if it wasn't my legs, it was my tummy. If not the tummy, my legs again, or my headache. Then later my sinus headache, or earache, or feeling nauseous, or my neck, or on and on goes the list. It was very debilitating and frustrating as I could never do what everyone else did. I could never walk as much as others did. I could never swim as much as others did, or dance, or run. And to add to my frustration, I was constantly criticized by my parents for it. They used to say how embarrassing it was to take me anywhere. Very often they called me lazy and rotten, or nobody will want to marry me, etc. But most frustrating was that nobody believed me. Even my parents would look at each other and smile secretly as in, here we go again, she and her pain. I didn't have any swelling or redness to prove that I was in pain. I didn't have any bruises or bleeding, no cuts, no stitches, just my plea for help for something that was invisible. 
Growing up in that environment, the belief that something was very wrong with me became deeply embedded in me for a very long time. It was a very dark and lonely place. But one day, when I was in uni in Skopje, the capital of Macedonia, away from my parents, I decided to stop running away from it. I realized no matter which way I positioned my legs, no matter how much I complained, they would still hurt. So one night, I decided to keep them still and let the pain do what it was meant to do, even if it wanted to kill me. After only a few seconds of not moving, the pain became worse, but I was determined. I remained still and focused on the pain, and after some intense discomfort, the pain, the pain became burning, then the burning started melting, and then it was gone. I fell asleep. Joko Beck, in her book, says, Christians call this realization the dark night of the soul. We've worn out everything we can do, and we don't see what to do next, and so we suffer. Though it feels miserable at the time, that suffering is the turning point. Practice brings us to such fruitful suffering and helps us to stay with it. When we do, at some point, the suffering begins to transform itself, and the water begins to flow. I had no idea what Zen was then. I had no idea who Jokobek was then. But this exercise, I will call it, became a regular practice in those cold evenings in Skopje. One day I said to my mother, I think I have some special healing powers. And I described to her what I did and how much pain relief the exercise gave me. Later, when I was reading Jokobek's book, I realized I was nothing special. I was simply practicing Zen, just like the title of her book, Nothing Special, Living Zen. I was devastated, but I continued practicing. At least it gave me so much pain relief. Talking about pain now, according to the traditional neurological view of pain, it says that when we are hurt, our pain receptors send a one-way signal to the brain's pain center and that the intensity of pain perceived is proportional to the seriousness of the injury. All that makes sense, but what about when there is no injury? Why do we experience pain then? Doctors recently gave me an explanation. Sometimes the receptors are sending wrong signals to the brain that there is tissue damage, when in actual fact there isn't. Well, now I was really confused. Recently I came across the book The Mind That Changes Itself by Norman Doy. And I learned that the traditional view of the pain receptors sending a one-way signal to the brain's pain center is no longer valid. The neurons, which are the nerve paths from the receptors to the brain, are much more plastic. They not only can send signals to the pain center in the brain, even though there is no tissue damage, but they can also change and those pathways can be rewired. I am not a big reader and Ross keeps encouraging me to read. So now I will have to do some reading in order to find out how I can rewire my 
pathways. If possible, I will update you in due course about that. <laughs> Back at Jokobek's words, practice brings us to such fruitful suffering and helps us to stay with it. When we do, at some point, the suffering begins to transform itself and the water begins to flow. And then she says, in order for that to happen, however, she says, all of our pretty dreams about life and practice have to go, including the belief that good practice or indeed anything at all should make us happy. I would like to share with you my experience at my first seven days session now. I was getting very excited about it. I've heard other people who already had done it telling me how after the third day suddenly you have so much energy, tiredness is gone and feels great. Others said that at the end of it you will have so much energy that you will think I want more of these drugs. So me struggling with exhaustion and pain for the most part of my life. You can only imagine my excitement and expectations from this seven-day session. Well, after the third day, I was more exhausted than ever, and I also begin, began to feel emotional, teary, etc. On the top of my existing pain, there was more additional pains and aches throughout the body, as you all have experienced, I'm sure. I said to myself, oh, everyone is different. Maybe all that high energy and feeling great will happen to me on the fourth day. <laughs> fourth day was even worse. I was absolutely miserable. By the fifth day, I began to think, why am I doing this? I could be home in a nice warm bed cozy and comfortable on my lounge, watching a nice movie with a friend. Then on the last night I thought, oh well, perhaps it was just not meant to happen to me and I just have to be tired for the rest of my life. It was devastating. I was working on the koan, who am I, at this stage. And I had a doxan that night. The dachshund finished and I asked Ross while he was ringing his bell as I was leaving the dachshund room, why are we doing this? He quickly replied while ringing the bell so you can find out who you truly are. I was running up the steps to the dojo at the top of the hill and I could still hear the sound of the bell and his words, who you truly are. Who I truly am, I thought. And the word truly, truly, truly somehow stuck to my mind and I became absorbed by it and suddenly all my thoughts about who I was dropped. Even my feelings about who I was dropped. Everything dropped. It was empty. And I realized that I just am. Thoughts about myself as in, am I beautiful? Am I ugly? Am I smart? Am I stupid? Am I good? Am I bad? All gone. Because I just am. Nothing else. Just that. I'm not beautiful or ugly. I'm not smart or stupid. I am not good or bad. I am not anything. I just am. And suddenly, I could see. I realized I was blind for 49 years. How could I be blind for so long? 
Tears were rolling down my face. All I wanted was to run back to Ross, bow very low and tell him what I was seeing, and cry to him, how could I be so blind for so long? And then I saw someone else run down to the dockside room while I was thinking about it. So the moment had just passed and it was too late. Then I remembered the story Ross told us about the head monk, Ming, who had great realization and was in tears. I couldn't understand why he was weeping then. Now I understood. And everything around me was different, had a different dimension. It looked like I was in a living three-dimensional painting. The trees were connected to the sky. They were suddenly so close to me, the trees, the sky, the building, the walls, the sounds of the birds. In fact, there was no distance between us all. The leaves were touching my face and the breeze was dancing with me. I could see the air particles forming part of that three-dimensional moving picture and I was part of it. And I was no different than anything else around me. I was just part of it. We were all connected in one existence and we were all same. The trees were no different than me. The grass and the sky were no different from me. The chair I was sitting on that night was no different than, from me. I was relating to everything and I was not alone anymore. How arrogant I was until then to think that I was something more than the grass, sand and the pebbles on the ground. And suddenly, I had so much energy. I felt I could run across the planet Earth and more without stopping. I was on the top of the world. Just like Joko Beck said, all of our pretty dreams about life and practice have to go, including the belief that good practice or indeed anything at all should make you happy. So I dropped my hope and expectation about gaining energy and energy started flowing. As she says, and water begins to flow. And I remember my arms and legs were hurting, but it didn't matter anymore. There was nothing wrong with me. It was magic. The truth is though, I can talk about it all night long, but I don't really have the words to describe the exact experience. Ross asked me after about a year and a half after the experience at that session if it changed my life. I would like to remind you that the main reason that I started meditation formally was to quieten my hyperactive obsessive mind. Right, at, and right up until my experience, I was still obsessing about things, although not as much as before I began to practice. Since my experience, though, on those occasions where I would once have headed down the path of obsessing, I now have the ability to simply move on. The way I see the world has changed. I am finding beauty in everything, day and night, cold and hot weather, quiet and loud, outdoors and indoors, socializing and quiet times alone. I have so much joy in each moment in the cold misty mornings and the warmth of my small cozy home, when the sun is shining and when the storm is wild, joy in each drop of rain and every sound around me. The way I feel about myself has changed. I'm not worried about what people say or think about me anymore. 
when I hear people whispering, instead of automatically thinking they were talking about me as I used to, I just don't even entertain the thought. I'm not feeling lonely anymore. Wherever I go, there I am. Whoever I am with, that is who I am with. I walk alone, but I am not alone. My idea of what friendship should be has shifted. Now there is more spontaneity rather than strict rules and conditions. My friends are the pelicans when I am kayaking and the dirty dishes that I wash every day. Attachments to people, places and things have become weaker and I have become so much more forgiving and yet stronger within. A sense of awareness that my opinion is just one aspect of the picture follows me at all times, even when I make strong statements. Liberated. Liberated would be the word if I would describe it, if I had to describe it with one word. Before I went to the last session, someone said to me, and you will come back and you will be the same. But I don't really want to change anymore, as I realized that there is absolutely nothing wrong with me. And it's not about me anymore. I still cry, I still get upset and anxious and sad, but it's not about me anymore. It's about a mistreated friend and colleague. It's about the lost cubby bear that couldn't keep up the spit with the mother and its siblings. About my homeless friend. It's about all those who live in extreme poverty as a result of Macedonian government failing to provide a system that would prevent this and all those other countries similar to Macedonia. It's about the refugees and their mistreatment in detention centers and around the world. I feel their pain and their anxieties. It's not about me and my pain anymore. It's about the lady at the supermarket whose face shows her pain in her knees. It's not about the things I can't do as a result of my limited mobility. It's about what I can do with what I have. And I'm not saying I am more positive. Not at all. This has nothing to do with being positive or negative. It's about being present and what I can do in this moment. This doesn't mean I don't care about myself anymore. On the contrary, I have never taken better care of myself in my life. And all these changes didn't really happen overnight. There were lots of sweet ups and downs, but it was an obvious change, not in a linear way. Painful at times, but very, as Joko Beck says, very fruitful. I like Zen because of its austerity and hard work and practice. There is no hocus pocus and any magic promises for anything. And I used to hate Taishos. I didn't want to hear any preaching and waste my precious time that I wanted to use to practice. Let alone the fact I could not concentrate long enough to hear the stories and they didn't make any sense anyway. <laughs> now I actually am beginning to understand them. I hear them. They are food for my soul. And if anyone asked me, would I change my current life with a life where I would have lots of clothes and uh, looked absolutely gorgeous, have a PhD degree, no pain at all, 
climb Mount Everest but not have Zen in my life and the experiences I had with my Zen practice? I would say no. Pointing out if any of those things that I just mentioned come to me, I would certainly not refuse but embrace with excitement and joy. But none of these things can give me what Zen has given me. I started meditation in order to find peace and I can tell you it is definitely not what I found. I joined Zen in the hope that I will fix my mind and body and I will become more serene and a good person. I definitely did not fix my mind. It still thinks and overthinks and I'm definitely not serene. Not the way I was hoping to be. What I found though is a treasure, a jewel that comes with me at all times. It makes me rich beyond words, beyond money, beyond anything. Just as Shodoka's lines. In their poverty they always wear ragged clothing but they have the jewel of no price treasured within. This jewel of no price can never be used up, though they spend it freely to help people they meet. And if there is any, any ambition left in me, it is to give that jewel to you, if I could. I always lack words when I want to convey a message. So I will just read my favorite poem to finish the talk tonight. The law that marries all things. The cloud is free only to go with the wind. The rain is free only in falling. The water is free only in its gathering together. In its downward courses, in its rising into the air. In law is rest if you love the law. If you enter singing into it as water in its descent. Or song is truest law and you must enter singing. It has no other entrance. It is the, gr the great chorus of parts. The only outlawry is in division. Whatever is singing is found, awaiting the return of whatever is lost. Meet us in the air, over the water, seeing the swallows. Meet me, meet me, the red bird sings here, 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 here. By Wendell Berry.